I wanted to explore this category of liturgy. What is it? It sounds very religious and it's clunky word that most people, if they are familiar with liturgy, might have a strong reaction one way or another. This category of liturgy, it's about entering more deeply into the life of God and using disciplines, practices, which have as their focus Jesus Christ, that opens us more deeply into the realities of his kingdom and truly what occurred on Holy Thursday, Good Friday, Easter Sunday, and that we are, we are changed people as a result of those, those realities and those graces. Simon Kine is a dear brother. He's like-hearted, and we met many years ago, over a decade ago, at a first boot camp that he participated in 2009, and then in Wild at Heart advanced after that. Eventually, he came to one of the earliest Become Good Soil intensives. One of my favorite attributes of Simon is that every year on the year, he sends me a letter to celebrate one more year of consenting to the path and the process of becoming. And every year, those letters have an increasing aroma of hope and victory and celebration. One mentor said that we will reap in the next decade what we sow in this decade. And Simon's in a season with his young children, with his wife, with his community, a season of reaping reaping from the slow and steady work of becoming. Simon's a faithful brother and friend, and he was born in New Zealand, raised in Canada, and now resides in Southern California in his professional world. He has a high-level leadership, a job in a corporate arena, but what defines him most is he's a pilgrim. He's a man after God's own heart, And as a man who practices in a faith expression that's deeply liturgical, I wanted to turn to his expertise, to his wisdom, to his experience, to invite our community to take a risk, to open the doors on liturgy and explore treasures that may be unfamiliar or may have been lost along the way. So friends, welcome to another episode of the Become Good Soil podcast. Let's dive in. Thank you, Morgan. Pleasure to be here. And here just as one who's been blessed by liturgy, not an expert, not a theologian, just one who's learned some practices and I've inherited something from those who've gone before, kind of in the spirit of becoming a king, this inquiry into ancient things that are lasting and enduring, you know, what's going on there. That's that's part of what draws me to liturgy and and what we'll talk about today. So I want to just start unpacking this category of liturgy. What do we mean by that? Could you define it for us and what is encapsulated in that idea? Yeah, you bet. Um, let's start with Dallas Willard, who's a, a favorite of yours. And, and uh, I learned of Dallas through you. So Dallas, in his book on the spiritual disciplines, talks about this this category of worship. In his words, worship is the engaging, the dwelling upon, the expressing the greatness of, the beauty, the goodness, and the glory of God through words, through symbols, through rituals, 
And he goes on to point out most profitably when done through the person, when centered on Jesus Christ. And that's a rich, dense, textured thing. I think another way to approach it, if you think about Ephesians chapter one, St. Paul writing to the church in Ephesus, he starts with these incredibly compelling words that the father chose us as sons under Jesus, sons under the father through Jesus to be holy and blameless. Liturgy is this beautiful life of the church out of which we live that blessing. It's a, it's a blessing that is reflected in, in liturgy, how we adore the Father. We return to the Father that blessing and honor him, right worship, right praise. It's how we respond to Jesus as the word of God, as the son of the Father incarnate, and try to become more like him, all in worship, but also in, in how we proclaim the gospel. And then thirdly, the Holy Spirit is that that gift of Jesus and the Father poured into the church for the life of the church that we can go out and operate as people of charity. So starting with Willard, this idea of worship and that worship configures us as believers to God and through God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, liturgy is, is the worship, it's the proclamation of the gospel, it's the serving the other in charity that brings together various elements and aspects of liturgy. It's absolutely what you said. It can get problematic. People can get hung up on the ceremonial, on maybe obscure symbols and rituals. But this idea of it's of the life of worship or how worship is lived out combined with this trying to bring to, to, to life these uh, things of God, that's, that's a good way to come at it. Yeah, what I appreciate about that description, Simon, is you're starting with the essence and the heart of it. So what's so helpful and hopeful is if we keep what you just described at the epicenter of what we're after, we won't right. lose our way. Right. So I think that's really important. And now I also want to say on a very concrete, yeah. operational reality of liturgy, <laughs> the things that come to mind are... It's certain dates on the calendar, right? It's things yeah. like Lent in preparation for Easter and right, Advent right. in right. preparation for Christmas. And thinking about Easter, it's not just a Sunday celebration, but there is a preparation process for the celebration that you begins with Ash Wednesday, but then also Holy Week, you have Palm Sunday, and then right. you have Monday, Thursday, and Good Friday. Right. And so there's a calendar to it. And then there's activity towards it. I remember, you know, I, I was raised sort of Catholic. In yeah. other words, my dad was Jewish, my mom was Catholic, and it was right. this tug of war. I was an altar boy. And so that, like you said, there were rituals and symbols, most of which I had no understanding right. and no one was teaching me. So I remember the smell of incense and on certain days there was incense. And I remember on certain days of the year, there were these really long scripture readings that were <laughs> painful to kids yeah. and it's right. up and down, up and down, kneel, stand, <laughs> kneel, stand, sit. And I'm, I'm explaining that for two purposes. One is when we're talking about liturgy, we're talking about the heart expressed in very particular practices, activities, ceremonies, right. and symbols. And that can be a huge benefit. And then also it can be a hang up and it can right. miss the mark. And so as we dive into this category of liturgy, let's start with 
the bad? Let's start with where does it miss the mark and why yeah. do many people avoid it? Let's just yeah. unpack a, lot, a little of that so we can get to the gold. Liturgy is a, a confusing word for people. It's something that comes with potentially a lot of baggage. For others, you say the word liturgy, it flows out of very specific meanings. What you touched on with your Catholic upbringing, liturgy um, it, it relates to the Sunday liturgy, Sunday set aside for the resurrection, Sunday where we commemorate Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. We stand in a posture of Sabbath, Sabbath which remembers the things that have gone before commemorates the, the life of the church today and that we're as a church heading to uh, something that will be consummated at the end of the age. So that's quote unquote, the liturgy or Sunday mass or the divine liturgy or, or what um, others would call that, that form of worship, which gathers the body of Christ. Okay. A lot of terms, a lot of terminology out of that. You have these other forms of liturgy, which is how does the life of the church occur or unfold in time um, the, the word used is sacramentally. And so this is where you have things like baptism, you have adult initiation, you have sacramental confession. We'll talk about that probably later today. These are these tangible signs of the work of God, the saving power of God in time, in the soul or in the, the, the life of the believer, in the one who chooses to follow Christ. We're not a, a religion that has this single moment of conversion and that's it. We're all the way transformed into our, our glorious states. We have to work at it. Jesus says, pick up your cross and follow me. This liturgy, this liturgical life helps us or configures us to the carrying of the cross and following him. The last thing I'll share is just maybe I'll pay homage to your Jewish and your, your dad's tradition. The liturgical calendar you touched on. In the earliest days of the church, the, the, the apostles were themselves pious Jews who, who obviously followed the Messiah. And for them, Passover took on this transformative meeting when Jesus himself took bread and took wine. And in the context of a Passover, the first liturgy of the mass was offered. And now the Passover has changed. There's no longer a commemoration of, of something that goes back to the Old Testament. It was no longer something that the Jews to this day still commemorate. They still hold on to Passover. Right that today the Christian people have adopted that, but it's a celebration of the new and everlasting covenant of Jesus ratified by his body and his blood. Okay, why is that important? The liturgical calendar revolves around Easter, that every 365 days, our true north is Easter, the day of the resurrection, the day of our salvation. The world before Easter was different. The world after Easter was forever changed. Yes. And we hold on to that. And so traditionally, the priest or the person in authority, the minister, will announce the calendar for the year. And to your point, it didn't begin January 1. It began for us late November, early December, essentially four Sundays plus a few days until Christmas is the first Sunday of Advent, the beginning of the new liturgical year. Advent is this time of preparation, this time of, of awakening to the realities of the coming incarnation of Christ, we celebrate at Christmas, 12 days of Christmas. And then we go into a period of, of reflecting on some of the early days of the ministry of Christ. And then this, this weird thing called Ash Wednesday. Ash Wednesday heralds the 40 days of penance and preparation for Easter. That's what, what gives us Lent. So Lent, Ash Wednesday, beginning of Lent, always anchors off of Easter. 
And then the other feasts besides, if you read in scripture, 40 days after the resurrection, Jesus ascended to the Father. In the liturgical calendar, we have something called Ascension Thursday. If you go to, to Acts chapter 2, the Feast of Pentecost, 50 days after Passover, what do we celebrate as Christians? 50 days after Easter, we have a Feast of Pentecost, which concludes Paschal Tide in the Old English, but essentially the Easter season. And just to give it a bit more color and texture, the church doesn't want us to be people of doom and gloom. And so Lent is 40 days, but the Easter season is 50. The Easter, the resurrection, the truer reality, the truer expression of who you are as a believer is what you are in the risen Christ, not Christ in the desert, although that's important, although that's not avoidable. So again, richly textured. There's a lot of detail there. I probably haven't explained it very well, but it gives you some sense of cadence. Um, and, and this Jewish linkage is important because liturgy actually goes back to the earliest days of the early biblical covenants. The people of God were recognized through their prayer. They were they understood themselves to be chosen because of their prayer, because of their priests, and because of uh, these, these ways in which they responded in right praise to God. Simon, as you share, what I'm aware is um, it's deep and wonderfully complex, right? There's nuances, there's history, there's depth and breadth and dimension to all of this. Um, it's really helpful. I think where, where I would go in response to what you just shared um, as a person not in the liturgical life, but very much practices portions of liturgy, I, I hear these words like you described Advent being a season of awakening in preparation for the incarnation, right? It's yeah. not just yeah. Christmas day, Christmas right. tree. What did Santa put under the tree? Right. There, there's actually a season of readiness. And then I hear you describing Lent as these 40 days of a season of preparation for a celebration. And as, as you said, I love it where the whole calendar hinges on Easter Right. And it actually invites us ever afresh into the resurrection life, which is the longest right. time right. of the calendar. So, right. you know, Dallas uses this phrase, this question, how are you arranging your days? Around what are you arranging your life? And so what I want to suggest to our friends is this isn't meant to be overwhelming right. or one more thing. It's a curiosity of what if, the same way we're choosing to arrange a decade over excavation right. instead of building, right? right? Becoming, right? And focusing on who we are rather than what we do. What if we were to arrange our calendar and our own spiritual life and the life of our family and therefore our community around something that's ancient and historic and immensely hopeful is an on-ramp to the kingdom rather than simply the secular calendar right, right. or the, the national holidays. Yeah. And, and so I think what, I, what I'd want to say is, okay, for me, hangups, there are these hangups of it can get very dogmatic, right? My childhood was about do these things, then you will be religious, right. but it didn't engage my heart. And there wasn't a spiritual guide it was explaining the heart behind it. And so when I went to look for God, I wasn't finding him in the liturgy. 
You bet. And then I came into an encounter with God in college where it was a saving moment. It was a moment of repentance and literally becoming, receiving a new heart. But as you said, it began a process. As Paul says, we are saved and we are being saved. We work out our salvation. It began a process of restoration, of initiation. And I think at that point, I actually began returning back to liturgy. Yeah. And seeing the spirit and the heart of Christ in it, it actually fueling my masculine initiation. And here are three phrases that I, I came to of what is the core benefit. So I appreciate your explanation of it as a, as a simple layperson, a little bit more on the outside. The three phrases that come to me are the power of liturgy is it's not about you. Right. It's not up to you. Right. And you are not on your own. Right. And there's something of it's, it actually is not about me. It begins with God. Mm-hmm. Everything originates with God. And that's actually right. really refreshing because I get to enter into God's life. It's not up to me that right. I don't actually have to create my own spiritual formation, my own spiritual practices, that there is a community of believers that's very historic, sure. that's sure. inviting me to practice. And I'm not on my own that I know, as you described, even the liturgical celebration of a mass or a Sunday service, you know, there are a body of believers all around the world participating in these sacraments. And so while it has its hangups, it has immense benefits. And I really appreciate uh, your perspective and I'd love to hear more from you. So what else, when we talk about liturgy, what, what does it do? What does it enact before we get into some specific practicing of it? Sure. Sure. So first of all, maybe just to set aside some, some trigger points, you know, when we talk about liturgy, um, that can be viewed as uh, a superiority complex or a very narrow, you know, rigid, um, kind of rules-based approach to, to things. Um, right. Pray these prayers, right. do these activities, so, celebrate so these things. If you are not from a liturgical tradition, there's no judgment or, or, or condemnation or how you've come to Christ. Like we are all followers of Christ and, and pursuing the narrow way in our own way. And, and as we're called to, what I would posit is this liturgy is, is a way of loving God. You know, Jesus invites us to come back to the Father with all of our hearts. He's the fullest expression of that. Liturgy is that invitation. It's traditional in that we we are not just a church that is 20 years old. We're a church that's 2,000 years old. And we've inherited certain things, certain practices, which have stood the test of time. What is the core question of uh, become good soil, right? It's to excavate. It's to set aside our preconceptions to become um, something else. It draws us all together as believers around the person of Jesus Christ. And yeah, there's something powerful. When you get a group of people together to pray, something changes. It is true. There can be, quote unquote, um, liturgy that doesn't transmit that. Okay. But there are some simple practices that can helpfully, you know, come Holy Spirit, get us back to more of a liturgical posture. A simple invitation. I extend it to those listening. If you are not uh, in a community that observes Ash Wednesday or a 40-day period of Lent, just choose to to take those times for yourself and set aside a time of preparation. It's modeled on Jesus going into the desert. The the great Luke chapter 4, 
you know, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me. Jesus is in his own synagogue. And he says, the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. That moment occurs after, after Jesus has spent 40 days in the desert. And there's some preparation, there's some deeper work of God that is unfolding for us when we choose to follow and do what Christ did and set aside time for him. Simple, light practices that are liturgical. Um, take some time in scripture to pray with friends. There's something called the liturgy of the hours. It's mostly the Psalms. It's mostly just meditating, reflecting on scripture, but it's usually done in the context of people together, praying together, sometimes singing these Psalms, singing these prayers, so that the day, similar to how we live in a, a temporal or a Western calendar, but we have this liturgical calendar that invites us into the larger story. They, as people living or practicing the liturgy of the hours, they take each day and they keep one foot in the, the, the kingdom. They keep one foot through their prayer in a, a posture of honoring and worshiping God, receiving what Jesus has for them and being open to the life of the spirit. So what I'd love is an on-ramp. We were really intentional at recording this podcast in preparation for the Lenten season. Mm. And as we talked about, so much of Western Christianity and evangelical culture celebrates Easter without any preparation. And so right. we go right. from a busy week of work to this Easter celebration, but so much of the gold is lost because we've removed it from the process. So right. by way of example, by way of application, I'd love to just go back and forth as a model of what would it be like to practice the Lenten season this year as an on-ramp to liturgy. Ash Wednesday is a time where a lot of liturgical communities have a, a ceremony, have a service, where they involve ashes, for example, or literally yeah. in the Catholic church, a priest will put a cross yep. of ashes on your head and it hearkens from Genesis three. I remember, I think it's verse 19 as from my childhood. And it says these powerful words Yeah, from dust. I came and, and from to dust, to dust I, will return, I will return. Right? Yeah. You bet. Yeah. So, so what is Ash Wednesday and why is it worth celebrating? Ash Wednesday, again, just to re reorient, we've got this 40-day this period, a liturgical season. So the day before, what we call Fat Tuesday, Shrove Tuesday, other words for it, it's an emptying of the larder. You know, it's not necessarily the debauchery of Carnivale and other communities who, you know, maybe get a little bit uh, carried away. Um, but, but certainly this idea of let's purge the larder, get rid of all the luxuries. Let's make pancakes because that uses your eggs and your butter and your, your luxury grocery items, at least back in, back in the early days, those were luxuries. And, and you empty because you're going into a time of fasting. A priest said once, you know, I'll be given a bottle of 12 year old whiskey once a year. And I enjoy that one bottle over the course of the year. And I always get behind in Lent. Why is he getting behind in Lent? Because he's not drinking the whiskey in Lent. He set it aside. Let's always link liturgical practices to the point. We're created for union with God. Yes. And irrespective of how 
much effort or, or application of self we apply to the challenge of the gospel. There is a falling short. Okay. And so the Lenten period is a time of coming back to an awakening. It's a time of where have we made those agreements? Where have we made those, those little compromises over the course of the le- months leading up to Lent? These things don't happen in, in you know, discrete tranches. There's usually a decay of, of fervor or a little decline, and there needs to be rigor. You know, think about the athlete who's just won the Olympics. And they know the next Olympics is four years away. They probably take a little bit of time after winning the Olympics to just let their body rest and recover and maybe get a little bit, you know, squidgy. And then they get back into training. Okay. Lent is like training. Lent is like training. And similar to all good approaches around how do we change and repent and turn metanoia back to God, we do it incrementally. Okay. Yes, we can have these transformative encounters with God powerful moments of healing where we are different after that encounter with Christ. But often the cases and the story of the Christian life is the long perseverance. Yes. Ash Wednesday, the, 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 the liturgical practices, it comes from the book of Joel. It comes from Psalm 50, 51, the, the great Psalm of repentance, Corinthians five. And then Matthew six, Jesus says, when you fast, do not draw long faces like the Pharisees do wash your face and be this joy, joy filled being. My, my paraphrase, on Ash Wednesday, we are called to fast. And it's something that we don't do individually. We do as a body of Christ because Christ fasted. We also put on ashes because it's an external sign that I am a sinner. As a church in Rome where it's full of bones, it's a little bit spooky, but there's a sign that says these are bones of monks, of, of, of men of prayer who've lived down through the centuries. And it says, as you are, we once were. As we are, you will once be. That is to say, we are, we are transitioning from something to something, okay? You wrote a blog on the challenge of giving up beer because a friend of yours was sick and had to give up beer. And just the, the, the simple abstaining of, of beer, which is a, a passion of yours and a, 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 a treasured gift of the Lord. Okay. Um, that triggered all kinds of things for you. And you, you described it beautifully. That is a Lenten type expression of, I gave something up and discovered I was missing, or there was a place of compromise or something in my, my story of conversion day by day that was lacking. And it was highly instructive. This idea of fasting, 40 days, it's drawn from scripture. Jesus fasted for 40 days and 40 nights in the desert. It says the spirit, Mark chapter, gospel or Mark chapter one, drove him into the desert. He was compelled by the spirit to go into the desert. We follow likewise. What happens when you give up beer? You see what is behind the comfort of beer. Yes. Think about silence. I have a, a friend, a priest described it this way. People, young people, especially in college, they have a hard time praying with silence. Silence is deafening. And it's the paradoxical phrase. Why? Because it amplifies the things that we're sort of drowning out with lots of noise, lots of music, lots of busyness. Okay. When you fast and give up things, guess what? I learned that I'm pretty oriented to comfort, not to the cross. But it doesn't just rest at fasting like some kind of dry exercise. The idea of fasting, back to Jesus' 
uh, teaching to, to wash your face and to be present to the world is it, it orients you to charity. And so the church will, uh, will prescribe, prescribe means it's a suggestion, do additional works of charity, make more of a gift of almsgiving, okay? We're still in the grips of lockdowns and the pandemic, which we're all tired of hearing about. All the more reason to hold on to these ancient things that take us out of the headlines of the day-to-day and how worse it's getting. No, if we can hold on to and be that much more generous in a time of real trial for the church and trial for the world to what Christ has given us and Lent offers that, it, it brings incredible spiritual fruit. If, if I could just add to that, one of the best ways that Lent was interpreted for me and, and what's been really, really helpful, again, thinking about Wild at Heart, Becoming a King, this assault, this something that has been stolen, this something that's been taken away from us, this linkage to Christ and to the Heavenly Father, this return of the Heavenly Father. If you unpack the verbiage, the language the enemy uses with Christ in the desert, because he's tempted three times, the enemy begins each of the temptations with the following words, if you are the Son of God, if you are the Son of God, if you are the Son of God. The implication being is this corrosive skepticism it's part of what he threw at Adam and Adam fell, you know, if you eat that, you will not die. He, he, he sowed this doubt in the goodness of God and therefore undermine Adam's trust in God and what God had prescribed. Fast forward to, we'll talk about Good Friday in a second here. We read in scripture, these, these final words as Jesus is almost completely spent and is about to give us his spirit over the father if you are the son of God, come down from the cross. The same words that you hear, this caustic blasphemy, this corrosive blasphemy hurled at Christ in the desert or hurled at him in, in the cross. The point being, there are ways in which as we, as we travel through the race of this Christian life, that we as sons have our sonship corroded by agreeing to the temptations of the devil or being taken away by the distractions of the world, or just in the weakness of our flesh, you know? And so these times of Lent, these times where I get to say, it's no longer about me. I'm going to specifically and practically and, and, and with generosity, because I want God to bless it. You know, if my heart is closed, it's just a dry exercise. I'm like the Pharisees. But if my heart is open and I'm willing to trust there's a doorway you go through in observing the Lenten practices that opens you to richness on the other side of that, that, that I can't describe or, or explain. It just, it's part of the reality. It's part of the love uh, that we have for God and part of that divine romance. So as it proceeds, there's a lot of other nuances we could go into for sure more depth of the Lenten season, but I'd like to just kind of move forward. And now we get to Palm Sunday and yeah. move through Holy Week. What is Palm Sunday? Yeah. Why yeah. does that enter us in, in a powerful way in right. our soul for Holy Week? So, yeah. So just to bridge us, so we've gone from call it this year, mid-February through to the last week of March. Okay. So we're kind of five weeks in. Yes. We've been praying, we've been fasting, we've, we've been uh, pursuing maybe acts of almsgiving or additional charity. So Palm Sunday begins something called Holy Week. You need to think about a season as a crescendo. 
football season. We start with preseason. Then we get into the first week of the thing. And then we go through 16 weeks of games. And then the playoffs. The playoffs are this crescendo. Okay. Liturgically, we're drawing closer to why have we put in the time? Why have we put in the reps? Why have we put into, it's back to Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. The giving of the son that we would be restored to the father takes place on Good Friday and similar to Christmas, but now in a much more solemn, much more reverential, much more hallowed way. We don't just race up to Good Friday and suddenly just have this 24-hour period of pondering the crucifixion of Christ and then we move on. No. Palm Sunday heralds Holy Week. It's the the week reserved where the, the deepest realities of the Christian faith are commemorated in the liturgy, they're pondered upon in the scriptures, they're given to the church, and the church is is praying as a body of Christ around these deep, deep theological realities. Palm Sunday takes its name from Jesus leading up to his passion, the triumphant entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. Palm Sunday is this interesting moment because you emerge where it's not finished. Like your, your position, your posture, the, the sense of something has begun. This week will now unfold day by day. There's a weightiness. You know, I can read the Passion account multiple times in my home. But if I go to Palm Sunday Liturgy, I emerge a changed man, not because of anything I've done or more spiritual push-ups, because there's something I've been a part of, which carries me into deeper currents, deeper waters that I'm not going to quickly swim out of. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday of Holy Week, are I'll call them the Bethany days. And you read the various accounts before Jesus was betrayed and, and entered into his passion willingly. He spent these beautiful moments with his friends, Martha, Mary, Lazarus. Lent ends on the Thursday of Holy Week, otherwise known as Maudie Thursday. Holy Thursday, this heaviness, this weightiness, this sense of time slowing down liturgically takes on an even greater or or higher expression. The events of Jesus's Passover with his disciples. Oh, that I have longed to celebrate this Passover with you. There is a washing of the feet. John chapter 13, he got up from table, wrapped a towel around his waist and he washed the feet. You have that great interplay with Peter. You can't wash my feet. Well, then my hands and my head as well. How many times as a believer in the pew am I like, man, I'm so like that with the mercy of God. I want it on my terms, not his. This is really important. Lent has ended by the time the Holy Thursday liturgy begins. If you think about the daily prayer that that Wilder Heart um, has given to to those who, who who follow and pray it, you know, we invoke the passion, the death, the resurrection of Jesus. It's 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 what makes us Christians. This liturgical season of Holy Thursday, Good Friday, Holy Saturday is the period of time in which it's the holiest time of the year. And those mysteries are most closely celebrated, felt, solemnly commemorated. A clue, it's a small detail, but an important one is most of the time the liturgy ends by dispatching you to preach the gospel. If you've received something through true and right worship, you've been united to God, the liturgy dispatches you as a believer to be lights of the world, leaven, the salt of the earth. In a normal 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 day. In a normal week, any time of the year. 
it's a dismissal that's a commissioning okay in the latin ite misa s is where the word mass from go forth and proclaim the gospel with your lives is a way of interpreting that language is missing from the holy thursday mass the mass of masses if you will and the reason is because it's not over jesus got up from table a second time and he went across the kidron valley and he went into his agony and that plays out Thursday night after this quote-unquote liturgy concludes into Good Friday. Good Friday, you walk into the church. All the images are usually veiled. The altar is stripped. There are no altar cloths. There are no candles lit. It's that moment where Chesterton says that God was forsaken of God. You know, he describes in the incredible language of Good Friday. Liturgically, that plays out. The priest has not dismissed this Holy Thursday because it continues. The the liturgy of Good Friday begins. The priest walks into the church in silence. There's no organ. There's no music. It's incredibly solemn and quiet. And the first thing he does is he falls to his knees and prostrates on the ground before the cross. And he will, he will wait. He will pray. He will cast himself down before the Lord. And we likewise, it's truly what Moses said. I raise the serpent and all will be healed. The son of man will be lifted up. And will draw all people to himself. We enact that in the church as this Good Friday liturgy begins. There's a solemn reading of scripture. It's Isaiah. It's the, the prophecies of this suffering Messiah. It's absolutely heartbreaking. Then, and this is again part of the, the beautiful tradition and, and treasure of the church. The passion of John the Apostle is read. And it's the only passion read on Good Friday. And it's read because he was the eyewitness. He was there. And so we need to be there. And we hear from one who was. And he gave a loud cry and gave up his last. And the entire church falls to its knees. We can't contain it. We mm. can't add words to it. It would cheapen it, you know. Oh, God, my God, this, this incredible act of, of self-gift. You spared Isaac, the son of Abraham, and supplied the ram in his place. When Abraham was getting ready to, to sacrifice Isaac, God said to him, and yet you have not spared your own son, and it plays out before you. And I hear you saying it plays out in a communal environment. Right. So the right. power of your community having a liturgical experience is it's right. not just this personal faith. No. No. It's actually a corporate right. reality. The Good Friday liturgy concludes in silence. And the priest will sometimes remind people, something's happened here. Don't just jump on your phone or throw your radio on. Just go home. Echoing Holy Thursday, there's no dismissal because we're people now waiting at the tomb. And that takes us to Holy Saturday. Holy Saturday is the last of these three days. And that is, I'll call it the Super Bowl of the Christians. It's certainly the longest liturgy of the year. It's broken into three parts. It starts with the Liturgy of Light. The uh, practices around this are the churches in darkness. The, the church itself, if you will, takes on the character of the tomb, and we're waiting as believers for Christ to be risen from the dead. Trust me, in history and in time, he is risen from the dead. He is in his glorified body in heaven. But liturgically, as we recommemorate these things, it's important we start in darkness, and a fire is lit. And from that fire, candles are lit, and the entire uh, population of the congregation holds a candle and we begin to commemorate by candlelight seven readings which chronicle the history of salvation going back from Abraham 
all the way through to to uh, uh, the words of St. Paul about the sacrifice of Christ, the final and lasting and eternal covenant. And then there's this great moment where the lights of the church are, are lit. Uh, they, they, the church is filled with light and we sing something called the Gloria. It's the great prayer of praise to God, which we actually haven't sung since the day before Ash Wednesday. We've set aside this, this prayer of praise because it's one of these adornments of the liturgy that we set aside because we're in this penitential time. We now sing it. We bring it out from having been, been tucked away for over 40 days. And we sing it, and the church is filled with light. And then the Easter proclamation begins, which in this uh, in this instance this year will be Mark 16 uh, in this cycle of readings. Again, the entire church around the world, all the Catholic churches will read out of Mark, Mark 16. And it's the three women who come to anoint Jesus after his burial, and they find the tomb empty, and the angel is there. And they send them to tell his disciples that, that he is risen. There's just a variety of ways, all the veiling of the, of the imagery that occurred for, 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 for Good Friday, those veils are tor- torn down. We now are, are living as, as people of the light and not just us, but you know, a cloud of witnesses. Depending upon the liturgy and, and how the church uh, and, and the local customs approach it, it takes some time, but it's good to sit in these times. It is about remembering. It's about honoring the older traditions from the Old Testament that have their fulfillment in Christ. And we, again, everything is prayed. Even the priest himself, if you, if you read the language of the prayers, it's offered to uh, 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 Christ that he would present it to the Father, that we would receive of the Holy Spirit, that it is to his glory and our glorification, our Christification. We become more like Christ by participating in these sacred mysteries. The heaviness of Palm Sunday, where time slowed down and this week was set apart, you, you emerge from the Holy Saturday, the end of the Triduum, and into Easter Sunday. You emerge as people realizing that this, your sin has been re- removed, that the sting of death has been, has been broken. Um, there is something different about the world today because Christ died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. Again, a very short snapshot, but it, it gives you a certain sense that liturgy is language. It is back to what Dallas Willard said. It's symbols and rituals, and it's done to express something about the reality of God that in many ways defies expression. But if we anchor ourselves to Christ, Christ being the incarnate Son of God, he who has seen Christ has seen the Father, that's a bit of what gives liturgy its life. It has to. And and that's what, uh, again, in their little ways, these parish churches around the world bring to life. Simon, what I'm appreciating is the depth and breadth and just multi-dimensional reality of experiencing our faith, both personally and communally, mm. through this liturgical practice. I just think of what you just eloquently described, and then think of the latter right. of not celebrating any of that. And then <laughs> it's Easter, and right. the Easter Bunny came, and right. Christ is risen. There's just so much richness that's lost. Sure. And you're taking me back to my childhood of so many of those liturgical experiences, which I did not understand and were not explained. And so now in my 40s, I've unpacked a lot of it, but still even today, more mysteries are are being made known to me. So I very much appreciate it. And I think maybe a response as a person who participates in a liturgical life in increasing measure, but is not 
participating in a Catholic community, right. when I think of that same Holy Week journey, you know, beginning with Palm Sunday, and then for us with Maudie Thursday, you know, that word, it, so you know, because some of these words are funky, but it actually comes from a Latin word, mandatum, which means mandate, right? It's right. Christ gave us the mandate yes. in the upper room right. with his closest friends. He says he did that, that heroic and horrible act of right. washing of the feet. And he says in this, a new command I give you, love right. as I have loved. And so yeah. it's almost like you said with the Super Bowl, there's this building to a crescendo where he says, right. everything I've been for you. Right. Everything I've modeled, everything I've enacted, it yeah. all can be summarized in this one reality, love right. as I have loved you, right. love one another. Yes. And what I love about that upper room is it's a place of the ultimate intimacy of friendship, you know, where Jesus says, it says, knowing he came from the father and knowing he was returning, returning to the father. Yeah. He was able to do, you know, the most unthinkable act of love towards these other people. It was a time of intimacy, fellowship, friendship. And then it ends with the soldiers bursting in and and literally taking the Savior. And so in our family, we have this beautiful Holy Thursday liturgy that Sherry has written out a reflection that pulls from all the scriptures and we do a candlelight in our home and we'll do a foot washing. And it's a time of intimacy. It's a time of connection. And then it ends with the sound of soldiers marching. And so we wow. all we have this recording where the soldiers march. And it, over the years, we've had different friends over at our home during that night. And everyone is instructed at the beginning of the night, when the soldiers march, everyone leaves. Right. And so all of our friends leave in silence. It's wow. very awkward. Right. It's very unfinished. Mm-hmm. And that's the point right. is we go from this intimacy to this loss and we're, we're left hanging. And right. then we end in, in we, we go into Good Friday and we've always observed Good Friday, not as a work day, not as right. a school day, but as a day yeah. set apart to celebrate just the, the, the gravity of the savior of the world slain. And Saturday, as you said, is, is a beautiful day for us to reflect. What if, what if this wasn't so, what if Christ never came and embodied humanity? What if he never paid the price? What if we were never restored into that perfect union with God, our father and the heroic uh, Trinity and all of that prepares us for Easter. And so whether you have access to, you know, a Catholic community or Greek Orthodox or Anglican, you know, there are all sorts of liturgical expressions. And this doesn't have to be dogmatic, do it this way. What we're after in this podcast is recovering the spirit of the practice of a liturgical life. And you can do that without any formalities, you know, there are very accessible ways to get into this. And our hope is that this podcast in launching before Lent this year is simply an invitation to say, crawl, walk, run. Yeah. What would God have for you to increase 
your participation both personally and as a community in the liturgical life of the body of believers around the world? These are deep waters, deep, deep waters. Um, it, liturgy is a, a densely textured thing and you can't in one you know, hour plus conversation capture it all. Um, to your point, let, let's, let's take away something that points us back to Christ. And that's what I would encourage here. Everything here is about something, some act, some discipline that points us back to Christ. Um, for those that, that uh, this is intriguing for them, but this category of liturgy is really, really hard. Okay. I, I like to think about it as how has God renewed his covenant with us? The Wild at Heart team, you know, you guys use movie trailers and movie scenes to really bring forth a gospel reality. Um, if you have the appetite, it's, it's, it's certainly graphic and gory, but the passion of the Christ the film, just the crucifixion sequence where the last supper is overlaid with the crucifixion sequence. I think it's 10, maybe 12 minutes. It's beautiful, gut wrenching, hard, but it gives you this sense of liturgia. There's something fulfilled in Christ that goes back for, uh, the, the, the history of salvation to the, to the early covenants, uh, of the people of God. That's, helpful it's not to watch that is not to participate in liturgy it just points us or maybe gets our compass turned towards a bit of true north we touched on fasting acts 13 2 you know they're getting ready to dispatch um uh, barnabas and saul to, to the churches it says the community was united in the ministry and in fasting well the word ministry used there is liturgy it's the liturgy it was they were committing themselves to the prayers and to these traditions in expectation for something was to come. Lent is a pilgrimage. It's a journey. And so to take some quality of fasting, it could be from beer, could be from chocolate, could be from your music, could be from a podcast, could be from the news, to settle the cadence of life down, even just to give yourself a margin of silence. You know, I'm going to give myself 15 minutes. I found it no accident that the pause app was just recently refreshed with new content. It's expanded. Well, why, why would that be appropriate? If you haven't dove into the, the fruit of the pause app as a fast, not, not a deprivation, but as a, I'm setting this aside yes. to make room for God and to allow him in. Okay. Um, you have, have offered, you know, many uh, tips and, and, and suggestions in your book around setting aside technology, you know, and, and all that technology does to kind of parse the day into the urgent and the quick and the modern, slow things down, take your time. In summary, as, as we recover um, this, this category of liturgy, it's about entering more deeply into the life of God and using disciplines, practices, which have as their focus Jesus Christ, that opens us more deeply into the realities of his kingdom and truly what occurred on Holy Thursday, Good Friday, Easter Sunday, and that we are, we are changed people as a result of those, those realities and those graces. Simon, it's clear and it's deeply encouraging that you have cultivated a life in the practice of the liturgy for four decades. And it's an ever deepening process. And so to our listeners out there, I just want everyone to be encouraged that 
rather than go to overwhelmed. Just know that this is a beautiful and broad category. Once again, a narrow gate that opens to a narrow road that leads to the recovery of the fullness of life as it was meant to be. And so my encouragement to each and every one of you is to pause and to ask God, Father, what would you be saying to me? What is your on-ramp into a deeper, richer liturgical practice? In all that we're sharing and as we approach this Lenten season afresh, how is it that you would lead me to respond to your initiative to cultivate curiosity and engage? Engage in practices, engage in fasting, engage in a pilgrimage, in a process that leads us to the resurrection afresh. Friends, it's very important in all of this to not just simply stay in content, but to pause and ask God. He is deeply faithful in shepherding us into the more. And Simon, while we have you in this space, we're talking a lot about liturgical practices, but I'm curious if you would be open to actually inviting us into a liturgical practice with you. If there's actually a particular prayer or a particular experience that we could use to close our time, something ancient that perhaps we could all tap into together just by way of dipping our toe into these waters. Yeah, you bet, Morgan. So I'm going to borrow from the Byzantine tradition. Uh, Byzantine basically means the Greek or the Russian, uh, the Eastern churches when the disciples went out to, at the time, the Roman Empire world, many of them went east, and the Greek-speaking world embraced the faith, and obviously we have the letters of Paul that reflect that. The church went into its time of persecution over many centuries with the, the legalization of, of the Christian faith in the Roman Empire, which occurred in the 4th century. You had this incredible flowering of, of Christian writers who were able to proclaim things, and, and beautifully so. One of them is St. John Chrysostom, and this is called the Resurrection Homily, or the Easter Proclamation. Um, another way to think about it, it's a bit of the national anthem of the Super Bowl of the Christians. Okay. But it's read at every liturgy in the, in the Eastern churches for Easter. St. John Chrysostom. He wrote this testimony to the power of the resurrection. And the purpose of Lent is not Lent. It's to get to Easter. The purpose of the Christian life is not to die. It is to be born to new life. And I would just share these words again to myself included, because this is what the church uh, will rally around and hear proclaimed on that Easter Sunday. This is the resurrection homily of St. John Chrysostom. Let all pious men and all lovers of God rejoice in the splendor of this feast, this Easter feast. Let the wise servants blissfully enter into the joy of their Lord. Let those who have borne the burden of Lent now receive their pay. And those who have toiled since the first hour, let them now receive their due reward. Let any who came after the third hour be grateful to join in the feast. And those who may have come after the sixth, let them not be afraid of being too late. 
For the Lord is gracious. He receives the last, even as the first. He gives rest to him who comes on the 11th hour, as well as to him who has toiled since the first. Yes, he has pity on the last. He serves the first. He rewards the one, is generous to the other. He repays the deed and praises the effort. And I'm going to fast forward. Hell has been angered because it is frustrated. It is angered because it has been mocked. It is angered because it has been destroyed. It is angered because it has been reduced to naught. It is angered because it is now captive. Hell seized a body and lo, it discovered God. It seized earth and behold, it encountered heaven. It seized the visible and was overcome by the invisible. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? Christ is risen and you are abolished. Christ is risen and the demons are cast down. Christ is risen and the angels rejoice. Christ is risen and life is freed. Christ is risen and the tomb is emptied of the dead. For Christ, being risen from the dead, has become the leader and the reviver of all those who have fallen asleep. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Simon, thank you. It's an honor to have you in the space. It's an honor to learn from you and to be a fellow pilgrim with you in this journey of becoming. I feel like you've really opened the doors to some real riches that um, are worth exploring for each of us to simply ask God, what is the next step? And friends that are listening to this podcast, if you look at the post associated with this podcast on Become Good Soil, some of the prayers we've references, some of the practices, and even a basic liturgical calendar, just some on-ramps to the liturgical practice, some recommendations. You can find that on the blog post. And if you have noticed on the Become Good Soil podcast as of late, I have intentionally left about 45 seconds of nothing at the end of every audio file. So if you've wondered, what is with these Become Good Soil podcasts in this blank space? That is wonderfully intentional because this world of technology, it just cues up the next thing and causes us to race onward. But today, I would invite you to take these 45 seconds of silence and just pause and just let all of this soak in and just enjoy God as he enjoys you and be curious of what he's saying to you today. Simon, thank you for joining me. It's an honor to be with you. Thank you, Maureen. Friends, we'll be back together on a future episode of the Become Good Soil podcast. Thanks for joining us.